I invite you to turn to Psalm 95, and the message this evening is entitled Prayers of Thanksgiving. In our larger series, The Transforming Power of Life with God. Now, we've considered Psalm 95 on occasion, and as you know, I love the Psalms. We come back to them periodically uh, for uh, various emphases, and this is going to be our focus tonight from the perspective of Thanksgiving. And we've already opened in this study on what it means to walk with God daily, our daily devotion to Him, what it means to pray prayers of adoration, which is closely related to worship, but uh, a little bit different as well because it's our posture, not just uh, our praise. And then prayers of confession from Psalm 51 on the importance of living pure lives before the Lord, transparent trusting him uh, on a daily basis uh, to make sure that we're walking with him and that there's not any unconfessed sin in our lives. And then uh, this particular study on prayers of thanksgiving. Uh, there's a story, uh, a true story, about a man by the name of Kevin Kling, who is a famous Minnesota storyteller. Uh, he was born with a birth defect. His left arm was disabled and much shorter than his right arm at birth because of this defect. Then in his early 40s, a number of years ago, a motorcycle accident nearly killed him and actually paralyzed his healthy right arm. And while he was in the hospital recovering from the accident, he learned a life-changing lesson about what has been referred to as the three phases of prayer. In the first phase of prayer, we pray to get things from God. In the second phase of prayer, we pray to get out of things, certain situations or problems that we're facing. But when in rehabilitation for the accident, Kling learned the third phase of prayer, and that is giving thanks to God. And here's his story in part. This happened around 9-11 when he was in rehab and had gone through the surgeries, and here's what he says. He said, I'd been through many surgeries during my six-week stay in the hospital. And each day, I would ride the elevator to the ground floor and try and take a walk. That was my job. 9-11 had just happened. And our country was dealing with trauma while I was living a trauma. After my walk, my wife Mary and I went to the gift shop, and she asked if I wanted an apple. She said they looked really good. Now, I hadn't tasted food in over a month. I lost a lot of weight because food had no appeal. And so I said no, but she persisted. Come on, try it. So finally I said, all right, and I took a bite. And for some reason, that was the day that flavor returned. And that powerful sweetness rushed from that apple, and it was incredible. And he said, I started to cry, cry for the first time in years. The tears flowed, and as the anesthesia and antibiotics flushed through my tears, it burned my eyes. And between the sweetness of that apple and the burning of my tears, it just felt good to be alive. And I blurted out, thank you, thank you, thank you for this life. And that's when my prayers shifted again to giving thanks. It's important that we pray prayers of thanksgiving. Psalm 95 appears in a grouping of psalms that focus on the reign of God. And that grouping is Psalm 93 and then Psalm 95 to 99. The psalms are sometimes categorized 
as enthronement psalms because of their focus on God's eternal kingship. They may have been recited in the temple in Jerusalem during a time of worship. This psalm and a larger group of enthronement psalms appear in a section of the book of Psalms that runs all the way from Psalm 90 to Psalm 106. Now the psalm is quoted in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7 through chapter 4 and verse 13. The preacher James Montgomery Boyce observed regarding the commentary on the Psalm 95 passage, this is probably the most thorough citing of an Old Testament passage that is in the New Testament. So it's important that we make this connection because you'll remember that Hebrews 4 is an invitation for us as well to come before the throne of grace and to receive help in our time of need. I begin reading now in Psalm 95. We'll read all 11 verses and here's what the Bible says. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a king, a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Verse seven, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on, the, on that day at Massa in the wilderness where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. I'm going to move fairly quickly through this psalm, but I want to show you six reasons to thank God in prayer from Psalm 95. Six reasons to thank God in prayer. And the first is this. Thank God because he saves. The invitation is to come before the Lord and shout joyfully, to enter his presence with thanksgiving, and to shout triumphantly to him in a song. Now you'll note here that there are two calls to worship. The first is in verse 1. The second is in verse 6. Both of these verses begin with imperatives that move the human posture to a posture of praise. And the imperatives are followed by verbs inviting praise and singing. So verse 1 begins with the imperative, come. God is to be honored with triumphant shouting and with singing. And God is the rock of our salvation, is what verse 1 says. This is a title for God that has depth of theological meaning. The phrase appears several times in the Old Testament, and it's a phrase that carries with it vivid imagery. Cliffs and craggy rocks are common in the land of the Bible, certainly common in those days, and the Israelites often found themselves going to them to escape from their enemies and to escape from their pursuers. Those rocky places, those craggy 
cliffs could provide natural protective fortresses. David used them as a refuge when running from Saul, who wanted to kill him. And this is an idea that comes up a number of different times in the Scripture. Psalm 62 and verse 6 and 7 says, Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Now, realize that from an Old Testament perspective, at this point in their history, they were still looking forward to the coming of Messiah. He was still a promise that was yet to be realized. And one Bible dictionary put it this way, in the Old Testament, salvation refers both to everyday salvation, regular types of deliverance, such as from enemies or disease or danger, but also major deliverances that are specifically interpreted as a definite part of God's involvement in human history, God's deliverance from, of us from certain situations that we might find ourselves in. And then also the promise that God ultimately is our salvation in all things, and especially eternally so. From a New Testament perspective, we see the fulfillment of the coming of Messiah. And Peter preached at Pentecost in Acts chapter 4 and verse 11 that Jesus is the stone that you builders rejected, and he has become the cornerstone. Now, there's an interesting connection that is made as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Listen to what the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 10 in the first five verses. He says, no, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And now here's what's really significant about this passage. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, verse 5, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. So now we have this connection in several places in the scripture that God is the rock of our salvation. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected, but he's become the chief cornerstone. He's the ultimate stone, the foundation of it all, the foundation of our salvation. And then he's identified in 1 Corinthians 10 as the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So now we see the connection from the old to the new, from the promise to the realization. Psalm 89 and verse 26 says, He will cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. You can thank God because he saves. Now, this is important, and this is an important part of our testimonies. And if you've been around church any time at all, and you've heard people who have been believers for a considerable amount of time, and they're asked to give a, just a testimony of life, not specifically their salvation testimony necessarily, but they're asked just to give a testimony about God's goodness in their life. And what I've always heard consistently in those testimonies is that people will go back and thank God for their salvation. Because without salvation, we have nothing. 
without a relationship with God, we have nothing to be thankful for. So even if we're going to thank him for all these practical things in the moment, we're ultimately thanking God that we've been forgiven and that he rescued us and that he's the God of our salvation. And that brings us to a point on a daily basis where we don't ever get over the gospel. We, we don't ever grow beyond what God has done for us in Christ. We continually come back to it because that's the heart of our relationship with him. And then secondly, you can thank God because he is great. Now look in verse 3. He says, for the Lord is a great God. God demonstrates his greatness in all that he is and all that he does. But if we're not careful, faith can become routine and even dull. We can forget, we can get so familiar with the things of God. And we can give the Sunday school answers, we can give the rote things that we know are true, but yet we're not really feeling it. And we want to remember always when we come before God that we humble ourselves in his sight, that we've been invited to come by the blood of Jesus. We can come with boldness and confidence, but even so, we come in humility because this great God is inviting us in. And to refer to someone as great means preeminent, above the norm, or distinguished. So you can think about it this way. God in his greatness is set apart from people. In fact, God is so great that he cannot be compared with anything or anyone else. And in part, this is a mystery. Because when we say that God is great, we're saying that God is great and that he is incomprehensible. Meaning that his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. I think about the time of the judges. It was a terrible time in Israel's history spiritually. In fact, the Bible says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But there were some people who called on the name of the Lord and saw great and mighty things. Think about the parents of Samson, the judge, who were such people. His father was a man named Manoah and his wife who lived many childless years. They prayed and they asked God to give them a child. And the angel of the Lord visited Manoah. And in Judges 13 and verse 17 and 18, it says, Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? And when your words come to pass, that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. Now, in English, the word wonderful means really great, but in the Hebrew, it's a little bit different. The best word to describe it would be incomprehensible or too difficult to understand from a human perspective. And when Manoah wanted to know what the name of the angel of the Lord was, he was told, it is too wonderful for you. Now, let me make another connection for you here. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. That's not by accident. I believe what Manoah encountered was perhaps a Christophany and a reminder to us that God has been active and is always active in his greatness even when we cannot fully comprehend 
who he is or what he's doing. Psalm 145 and verse 3 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Listen to this. His greatness is unsearchable. Even though God is incomprehensible, he has made himself known to the world. He is the self-revealing God. So let me say it to you another way. What we know about God, we know because God has made himself known to us. He's made himself known to us through creation. He's made himself known to us uh, through his word. He's made himself known to us through his son. Hebrews chapter 1. And God wants us to know him. And even though the scripture says that his greatness is unsearchable, unsearchable, what that's saying to us is that we could search for the rest of our lives and we're never going to exhaust the greatness of God. The message is not God cannot be known. The message is God is great and he is greatly to be praised. And when we say God is great, we recognize that God is great also and that he is incorruptible. This fallen creation that we live in is corruptible. But we sing to the Lord, Psalm 30 and verse 4 says, and we give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. So God is never corrupted in any way. And when we say that God is great, not only is he incomprehensible and incorruptible, but he is also incomparable. There is none like him. He is incomparably great, according to Ephesians 1 and verse 19. There's no power in heaven or on earth that can come close. And I know sometimes I can be tempted to focus on my circumstances, on my problems. Uh, Sometimes we lack faith and we are hesitant to trust in God. But we can thank him because there is no one like him. We can praise him for his acts of power. We can praise him for his surpassing greatness. And we can thank God because he's great. Now remember, what I'm sharing with you in this prayer series is not just for theory. It's not just so that you have more theological depth or that you're more intelligent from a biblical perspective. It's so that you might be able to apply these things. So when you look at this psalm, remember that we're looking at this devotionally. And we're reminding ourselves that we are thanking God. We're able to apply this to our daily prayer lives because God's the rock of our salvation and he is the God who is great. But then third, we thank God because he's sovereign. Look again at verse 3. The scripture says that he, in the second part, he's a great king above all gods. Verse 4, the depths of the earth are in his hand and the mountain peaks are his. And then verse 5, the sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. He made the sea. Can you imagine the power in his spoken word that existed to just call it into being? This is the one that we're thinking. And the commentator Adam Clark said the supreme being has three names here, three references to him, El, Jehovah, and Elohim. And none of these apply to false gods. The first reference implies his strength, the second, his being or his essence, 
And the third, his covenant relationship to mankind. In God's sovereignty, there are several things that we would say about him that are true that would help us to put it in perspective. First of all, God is omniscient. It's the state of having total knowledge. It's the quality of knowing everything. He knows all that there is to know. Now, I tell you what I've learned, the more that I learn and the more educated I've become, what that's done for me is reminded me how much I don't know. If you truly are pursuing knowledge, it's going to humble you because you realize there are just so many things you don't know. And the depths of it when it comes to the sovereignty of God are beyond what we can easily box him into. But nothing has ever occurred to God. There's nothing that has ever surprised him. He knows it all because he's sovereign. And this God who is omniscient is also omnipotent. And when we say that he is omnipotent, we are saying that he is in total control of himself and all of creation. So God holds all power. He is over all creation. And he is the one who holds the depths of the earth in his hand and the mountain peaks are his. And he's the one who formed the oceans, the sea, and the dry land. So what might control us doesn't control God. What might trouble us doesn't trouble God. What might make us tired and weary does not make God tired and weary. He's able to soar above it, plunge beneath it, step over all the troubles that we might have on this earth. And then this God who is sovereign is also omnipresent. He is present everywhere at once, and he is everywhere all at once. And then God is omnibenevolent, meaning that he is all good. He is kind and helpful and generous to his creation. So when we pray to him and we thank him for his sovereignty, we thank him that we get to be a little part of that plan. And the sovereignty of God flows from these and reminds us of the self-sufficient nature of God, that he has the power, he has the authority, he has the right to do as he chooses and sees fit in his creation. You are God's creation and all rights of creatorship belong to him. So one definition of the sovereignty of God that I read said simply that it means God is in control. He's in control. Nothing happens in the universe that's outside of his influence and authority. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And Colossians 1 in verse 16 says, God created all things and he holds all things together, both in heaven and on earth, both visible and invisible. So if God is sovereign and we give thanks to him for it, then we can submit to him in faith, believing that God wants what is best for us. And we can take comfort in the fact that God wants what is best for us. Now, I understand there's also some mystery here. We live in a sin-fallen world. God's given free will. People operate within that free will. People make bad decisions. They hurt other people. There's pain. There's suffering. Even the Bible says even creation itself groans and cries out for renewal. 
So how does it work within that, that God is sovereign? How it works within it is Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. It does not say all things are good. It doesn't say all things are going to be pleasant. It doesn't say all things are going to be happy. It just says God's going to work it all out. So you can rest in the fact that God is sovereign and you can pray knowing that God is sovereign. And sometimes people ask the question, well, if God will do as he pleases and God does what he wants to do, God's a sovereign God, then why should I pray? Because that's how God designed it. So that we would be in a relationship with him and we would communicate with him. And he invites us to pray and he promises that when we pray, he will hear us. And when he hears us, he will respond to our prayers according to his will and for our good. And so we pray. It's not up to us to decide why God constructed it that way, why he ordered it that way. He did. So we pray. And we believe when we pray that it's not a fatalistic prayer. We're asking for specific things. We are pleading with God for the things that we need and the things that we are asking of him. And if he chooses to grant it to us, then that was according to his will. And if he chooses not to grant it to us, he's still God and he's still sovereign and he can still be trusted. And where you get yourself into trouble is when you start uh, putting qualifications on God is the way that I would say it. That, well, if God answers the way that I want him to answer, then he's good. But if he doesn't answer the way that I want him to answer in the moment, then I'm frustrated and I'm disappointed with God. And then I make this value judgment that somehow God was not good to me. God is always good. He is unchanging. But he calls us to come in a relationship with him and pray Dan Mastrapa wrote a piece when it doesn't feel like God is sovereign. And I love the way he puts this, and I want to read this in part. He said, the unexpected events of life happen, sending our emotions on a roller coaster ride. Our grasp on the truth of his sovereignty can slip when our lives seem to be spiraling out of control. When things are not falling into place as we feel they should, or when we are affected by a crisis. We waver in our confidence of God's sovereignty. We aren't necessarily doubting his sovereignty, but in the moment our emotions tempt us to feel as though God is not completely in control of our situation. To say that God is sovereign means that there's nothing in the vastness of the universe that can thwart his rule or his will. Our God is supreme, sovereign, and worthy of our worship. When you feel when your feelings flutter and you lose control, focus your worship toward your great and glorious God who is in control. You will go through times when you don't feel as if God is sovereign. But take heart, saint of God, he is. Don't place your trust in feelings that will fail you. Rather, place your trust in the unchangeable reality of the sovereignty of God. And then he says this. God's sovereignty is the pillow on which we rest our weary heads and our anxious hearts. Thank God because he is sovereign. And then you can thank God because he is personal. Verse 6 and 7. Let us worship and bow down 
Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Now notice the language of verse 7. For he is our God. This is a personal declaration of who God is to us. He is our God. Now if you know anything about the religions of the world, you'll know that most of the religions of the world believe that God is an impersonal being. That's kind of a common characteristic. Yet the God of the Bible, who is revealed in his word and in his creation and in his son, he's a personal God. For he is our God. So as a personal being, he's the living God. Jeremiah 10 and verse 10 says, but the Lord is the true God. He's the living God. He's the everlasting king. As a personal being, he's referred to by name in the scripture, time and again. He referred to himself as the I am, the burning bush in Exodus 3 and verse 14. Then Jesus instructed us to pray, our father who art in heaven. I think that's probably the most appropriate and common designation for us of our great God is to pray to him as our father who is in heaven, because that's certainly our relationship to him. But Jesus is inviting us to pray to the one who is in heaven, whose name is holy. And then as a personal God, he is the God of love. You remember he told Jeremiah, and he's speaking of the nation as well. He said, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Romans 5 and verse 8 says that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when we think about God as a personal being, we are saying that God can be grieved over our sin. He can feel sorrow. He has compassion for you when you're hurting and you're going through a life struggle, whether it be a health situation or a a family member that's in trouble or something that's not breaking your way otherwise in your life. He's the God who can show righteous anger and indignation. And he's the God who extends mercy and grace. And he is very clearly, as a personal being, contrasted with idols in the scripture. First uh, Thessalonians 1 and verse 9 says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. So what is Paul inferring in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 9? He's inferring that there are dead and false gods. And those dead and false gods are represented by idols that are made with hands. And he said, you turn from that nonsense. And when you turn, you turn to the living God. You turn to the true God. You turn to the one ultimately who is the only God. And of course, the clearest expression of the personal nature of God is that he sent his son into the world so that we could be saved. The personal nature of God comes across on nearly every page of the scripture. And the Bible is concerned not only with knowledge of God, but with knowing God. And that's what God is concerned for in your life, that you would experience the, the transforming power of life with God The God who is the creator, the God who's the redeemer, the God who's the sustainer, the God who is going to fulfill every single promise that he has ever made to you in his word. It's going to come to pass. And you can thank him 
that he says in his word, if you'll draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. Thank God because he's personal. And then thank God because he provides. Verse 7 in the second part says, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep under his care. We pray always for spiritual needs of our soul and our spirit, inward needs, of course. Why? Because he's the God who provides, just as he told Abraham when he was on the mountain with Isaac. He's the one who provides for us when nobody else fully understands. God knows. He knows what's going on in the depths of our soul. He knows what our spiritual needs are. And then we also pray for our daily physical needs of life, which are our our outward needs. Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. In the Lord's prayer, Jesus taught his disciples to pray for daily provision and dependence on God. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Provide for us what we need in our physical needs. Was it not Jesus who also said, don't worry about food or clothing because your heavenly father knows what you need? Psalm 84 and verse 11 says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So you can thank God because he provides. He's the one who will care for you as your shepherd. And then thank God because he guides. Uh, Verse 7 in the last part says, today if you hear his voice, in verse 8, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. God warned the people and they were to hear his voice. Uh, This particular warning is important enough to be referred to three times in the book of Hebrews, as already talked about earlier. Hebrews 3 and verse 7, then Hebrews 3 and verse 15, then Hebrews 4 and verse 7. And when the writer quoted this passage in Hebrews 3 and verse 7, he attributed it to, to the Holy Spirit. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, he was sure the words of Psalm 95 were inspired words from God. They were from the Holy Spirit. And then in Hebrews 4 and verse 7, the emphasis is on the word today. So you know what that tells us? To hear the word of God is an urgent matter. And the references to the trial at Meribah, but they speak of Israel's trust and failure to enter the promised land during the Exodus as well. And the reason? Disobedience. They didn't listen to God. They didn't believe the report of the spies. Moses decided he wanted to do it his own way rather than the way God told him to get water from the rock. So when God says something to us, there is urgency to it. When you sit down and you read the word of God, you are getting guidance from God through his word and through his spirit. And as I often say, God will never tell you to do something that is contrary to his word. I promise you, you will never be told to do something in your life that is contrary to the word of God. It will be consistent with his word. It will be guided by his spirit and it will be urgent. And the phrase, do not harden your hearts, means that it can be an act of the will to harden your heart. The people saw the work of God, but they wouldn't trust him. God gave them a reason to trust him, and they still didn't trust him. For 40 years, God was grieved with them. You know what that tells me? Unbelief is a serious matter. And God ended up passing judgment on the generation that would not enter the promised land. 
And we're reminded that God guides us and he's a trustworthy guide. He is our shepherd. I read a little section in the uh, one-year Bible uh, a while back uh, that refers to the five C's of how uh, God guides his people. I'm going to give these real quick. If you want them later, I'll tell you later. But first of all, he uses commanding scripture. That's the Bible. That's the commanding scriptures, the CS. Then the compelling spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. Then the counsel of the saints. That's the church. Then he uses common sense. That's reason. And then he uses circumstantial signs. That's providence. Let me say this again real quickly. Commanding scripture, which is the Bible. Compelling spirit, which is the Holy Spirit. Council of the saints, which is the church. Common sense, which is reason. And circumstantial signs, which is providence. I'm so thankful tonight that God guides his people. Notice the scripture from 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 16 to 18, and I'm going to conclude. It says, rejoice always, pray continually without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Continual thanksgiving to God as you pray in all circumstances. That honors God. So I ask you again in closing, what do you have to be thankful for? You're saved, your salvation, church family, relationships, God's provision, God's guidance, his peace in your life. Maybe you're going through a storm right now. Here's what I want you to walk out of here knowing tonight. God blesses his people and he can be trusted. Continually thank him for who he is and how he's with you in your life. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. Father, tonight we do have a lot to be thankful for. And just admittedly, Lord, we, we sometimes take things for granted. I sometimes forget just how blessed I am. And Father, that's a, that's a sinful posture to have ingratitude in our lives. Help us to be mindful of how good you've been to us, how faithful you are, how patient and loving and merciful you are to us. As we come to you with prayers of thanksgiving, may we have such faith that we would even be able to pray with thanksgiving in anticipation of what you're going to do because we know you can be trusted and we know you bless your people. Father, I don't know what all is going on in people's lives tonight here that are gathered and people that are watching or listening to this sermon later on even. But I pray that they would know that they're not alone, that you're a God who cares, who loves, who ministers to, and who leads us as our good shepherd. May we build our lives on the foundation of the rock and in all things be grateful 
day by day, moment by moment. And Lord, someday we're going to be in your presence and we're going to be able to thank you for all of eternity for what you've done for us. And we're going to see with even greater clarity how many times your hand was on us and we didn't even know it. Ways that you blessed us and we missed it. And we're going to be overwhelmed. So help us to be thankful now and to build that spirit of gratitude into our lives. We pray your blessings on uh, the remainder of this week. And Lord, may you be glorified in our lives and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's good to see all of you tonight. I look forward to seeing you on Sunday, Lord willing.